Hello, everyone. Thank you for attending this WebEx event today. My name is Kevin Navratel, and I am the Democracy Commitment Coordinator at Moraine Valley. I'm also a political science professor. I wanted to start by um, discussing and, and kind of highlighting the work that uh, has led up to today, uh, the event that we have today. We have been collaborating with the Democracy Commitment in the One Book, One College program for the past year. And we've had about uh, half a dozen events with about 12 different speakers. And I highly recommend um, watching these videos. They are available on the Moraine Valley Library uh, YouTube channel. And um, just recently, the last month, we had um, an excellent talk by Dr. Troy Swanson uh, looking at the, the power of beliefs and, and how that uh, is, is a big impediment to addressing climate change policy. But there's been several events that are, are really relevant to this theme that we have been working on for the past year on uh, misinformation, uh, the rise of extremism, conspiracy theories and the decline of truth and trust in the media. So I highly recommend that you check out those videos that are available on the Moraine Valley Library YouTube channel. So for today, um, I'm going to focus on uh, the role that misperceptions play in subverting democracy and election integrity. Um, so to begin with, I think it's important to provide some basic definitions that I'm going to be using today and what I mean by them. And a couple of them are, are straight from just Oxford Dictionary definitions, including the first one, and that is that misinformation, which is just false and inaccurate information, especially when it's intended to deliberately uh, deceive. And then I wanted to talk about, um, we're gonna be using the word misperceptions quite often. And there's a scholar, Brendan Nyan, who has defined uh, misperceptions as a belief in claims that can be shown to be false. For example, that Osama bin Laden is still alive or unsupported by convincing or systematic evidence. For example, that vaccines cause autism. And then lastly, um, I'm also going to use the concept of the big lie. Now, this goes back to Adolf Hitler. Uh, he wrote about this in, in Mein Kampf, um, this idea that a lie just so big, it can't possibly be distorted. Um, and also has elements of a lie that uh, pits one group of people against another uh, group of people. And as you can see from the slide, uh, Oxford Dictionary also defines it as a, a gross distortion or misrepresentation of facts, especially when used uh, as a propaganda piece. So. Um, I'm not the first to make this connection, but I would like to explain how um, the 2020 election uh, can be considered um, the idea that Donald Trump lost, or I'm sorry, that Donald Trump won, or that there was widespread fraud, or that um, you know Joe Biden is not the legitimate president. All of this can be construed as the big lie. So. Basically, if you falsely believe that the 2020 election was stolen or won by Donald Trump, despite lacking any evidence, that can be construed as the big lie. Um, now, one of the leading uh, historians who have looked at um, the rise of authoritative movements around the world, um, Timothy Snyder from Yale University, and shortly, I, I wanna say this is about a week after the 2020 election, he brought up this idea of the big lie and how the idea that uh, Biden didn't win the election is a big lie, 
And it's a big lie because you have to disbelieve all kinds of evidence to believe in it. It's a big lie because you have to believe a huge conspiracy to believe in it. And it's also a big lie because if you believe in it, it demands that you take radical action. So those are the basic definitions that uh, I wanted to start with. And then I think it's important, I'm sure that there's many people who not only voted uh, for Donald Trump, but perhaps believe in some of the um, uh, claims of election fraud or that the election was rigged. And so I think it's important to point out how the 2020 election is the big lie um, because of the overwhelming evidence that the election was free and fair. We have a federal agency that oversees election uh, security, and they found that the 2020 election was the most secure in American history. There was no evidence of any voting system deleted or lost or changed votes or in any way compromised. Um, more recently, the Washington Post has done some excellent work and they've identified at least 11 Trump advisors who indicated uh, to former President Trump that there was no voter fraud. And um, I could provide many other examples if um, anybody wanted to talk about that later at the end of my talk. Um, and I had indicated, by the way, in the chat that um, I'd be happy to take any questions and comments in the back half of the time that we have allotted today. So um, some potentially good news or bad news, uh, perhaps in the eye of the beholder, um, there's, there's a lot of evidence that citizens are not, not mis more misinformed than in the past. And I think that um, is surprising perhaps to some people, um, but to others, you know, we've had a, a huge revolution in information, uh, access to information with the internet and, and um, of course, higher education rates. Um, the more Americans um, are, you know, graduating from high school and attending college than ever before. So one example of this, just looking at the Annenberg Public Policy Center, they found that in a uh, roughly 15 year time period, that the percentage of Americans who could correctly identify the three branches of government, executive, legislative, and judicial, had gone up uh, to 56% in 2021 from 2006, where it was only 33%. And there's a lot of other examples like that. Um, and again, one of our leading scholars, um, Brendan Nyan, um, who looks at misperceptions, um, has, has claimed and said that um, belief and claims that shown to be false um, are no, uh, are, are, although troubling, is no worse than, um, let, me, let me start over real quick. In general, no systematic evidence exists to demonstrate that the prevalence of misperceptions today, while worrisome, is any worse than in the past. So what is new? Well, I think there's a lot of um, elements that are new, um, but what I'm going to focus on today um, are really two trends. And one is the justification for new restrictive voting laws. Um, I'm gonna show a model in which um, I'm gonna claim that elites, in particular, uh, former President uh, Donald Trump, um, really spread misinformation about election integrity, and then uh, that influenced citizens to believe um, in election fraud, widespread election fraud, or that the election was rigged, or that the 2020 election outcome um, was in incorrect. And so, the, and then those misperceptions that citizens hold 
those inaccurate views on the 2020 election then are used as justification for new restrictive voting laws. So I'm going to explain that more um, throughout the rest of my talk. But the other major trend, I think, and the reason I'm going to focus so much in the, um, uh, on the 2020 election as the big lie is just the total impact that it has had on our body politic. Um, I think that um, not only is it changing views and election integrity, it has really pervaded our political system in a lot of other um, troubling ways. So that's the reason that I wanted to focus on this aspect for today's talk. So um, misinformation, um, misperceptions and policymaking. I do wanna give um, a little bit of uh, disclaimers that Democrats or liberals, Republicans, conservatives, all have misperceptions and use uh, or spread misinformation. It's a bipartisan phenomenon. Um, as my original talk, I was going to give examples of how Republicans have used, um, based on misperceptions, have um, declared land a national heritage site in Montana. And Democrats, um, the perceptions amongst misperceptions amongst Democrats have been used to pass legislation to require uh, genetically modified food labeling, um, despite um, scientific evidence that shows for the last 25 years that genetically modified foods are safe. And I'd be happy to talk about those examples or others if, if there's interest in this. But I felt that it was prudent with the time that I had today to focus on what I see as the most nefarious and consequential trend that we have in, in our um, with misperceptions today. And that is the impact of subverting election integrity and um, the biggest uh, threat facing the United States in the decline of election integrity. So I wanted to cite um, um, a couple of uh, sources on this. There's many other people I could, I could list, but Rick Hansen, who's uh, at the University of California, Irvine, had, had mentioned that he's never been more uh, scared about American democracy than he is right now. And then the Yale historian that I had cited earlier, uh, Timothy Snyder, had basically said, um, and this is again right after the 2020 election, that it's right in front of our eyes. The most interesting and most distressing thing about American news coverage right now is that we don't treat the end of democracy as the story. That is the story. So. But that's the justification of why I'm going to focus on um, the role of the big lie and misinformation, misperceptions on the 2020 election as the, the focus of my talk today. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the trends that I think is prominent is the role of elites. And for today, I'll just focus on uh, former President Trump, although there is many other elites as well, um, of many of the just a long-term pattern of misinformation on elections, not just the 2020 election, but actually we could go back much further. And then the um, impact of that misinformation coming from the top then spreads to citizens and citizens then have misperceptions or are misinformed about election integrity. And then state lawmakers are using the um, belief or inaccurate beliefs, the misperceptions amongst citizens on widespread election fraud as the justification for new restrictive voting laws. So I'll 
um, provide a, an, a, an example of this and, and go through this in more detail, but I just wanted to visualize this model, how elites start the misinformation, it spreads to citizens, and then the misperceptions amongst citizens are then cited as evidence and justification for new restrictive voting laws. So role of elites. Um, now, obviously, the president in our political system receives the most attention. Um, former President Trump had, I think, around 80 million Twitter followers at one time. Um, and going back about 100 years to Teddy Roosevelt, there's this concept in political science known as the bully pulpit, that presidents um, can hold events, give talks, give speeches, and try to raise awareness or persuade, um, move public opinion to support their agenda. And when they give speeches, the media is going to um, come and attend the event and cover it, and then that um, speech is just going to gain more attention. So clearly, um, that's something that President Trump had and uh, gave a lot of speeches, got a lot of attention. Arguably, there's a lot of evidence that um, he's had more attention in the media than, than any of his um, peers before him that were president. So. Um, what I wanted to try to make clear is that this isn't just a few statements that he made. President Trump had been priming the audience um, on election fraud and questioning the you know election being rigged for years, and it was a, a consistent pattern um, that I'll I'll make a case for here in just a minute. Um, but to just highlight the, the role of elites that they play, this is uh, Donald Trump's actual former national security advisor, John Bolton, who had uh, stated that every day that goes by, it's clear and clearer that there isn't any evidence. But if the Republican voters are only hearing Donald Trump's misrepresentation, it's not surprising that they believe it. It's critical for other Republican leaders to stand up and explain what actually happened. Donald Trump lost by what, by any evidence we have so far, was a free and fair election. So again, that just highlights the role that elites play, um, the critical role that elites play in shaping public opinion. Um, and I just wanted to, in my going back through some of these statements, I kind of forgot about some of these, but uh, just wanted to put this out there and, and ask the audience what year um, when did Donald Trump tweet the following statements? The election's a total sham, a travesty. We are not a democracy. We can't let this happen. We should march on Washington and stop this travesty. Our nation is totally divided. divided. Let's fight like hell and stop this great and disgusting injustice. The world is laughing at us. If any of you uh, would like to use the chat to um, guess what year these um, statements were made. Let's take a, a brief time out and see if there's any responses. 2016. Two thousand twenty. They do sound a lot like two thousand twenty, and and um, I think that we could find very similar statements that were made from two thousand and twenty. Those were actually from two thousand and twelve. So let me go back to sharing. 
my presentation. So all of those statements that are currently up on the screen are from the 2012 election, which were, was really a blowout election um, when President Obama won re-election. But if you want to go back and do a search, this is, I think, November 7th of 2012. So that's, that's my point. This is a long-term pattern. And I originally was going to start here, um, but um, this is from 2016, a couple weeks before the 2016 election when he, when he won the 2016 election. But he was already claiming before the election started that there's large-scale voter fraud and you know, urging public uh, Republican leaders to, to follow this. In fact, the Washington Post has a fact-checking site that you can um, use or check out. And I searched just for inaccurate false claims that he made on, uh, on the election. And the Washington Post goes from 2017, January of 2017 to January of 2021. So in a four-year time period, he had 3,037 false or misleading statements. And uh, some of those, you know, were many of those, uh, 773 false claims were made in October 2020, 353 were in September um, 2020. So this was all before the 2020 election. And just to highlight um, the long-term pattern of Trump questioning whether he's going to accept election results and claiming elections are rigged. I want to go back to the third presidential debate from 2016, and I want to play this two-minute clip um, with um, candidate Hillary Clinton and uh, candidate uh, Donald Trump. It's so dishonest, and they poison the minds of the voters. But unfortunately for them, I think the voters are seeing fields. I think they're going to see fields. We'll find out on November 8th, but I think they're going to see fields. She shouldn't be allowed to win. It's crooked. She's, she's guilty of a very, very serious crime. She should not be allowed to run. And just in that respect, I say it's rigged. Because she, but, should, but, never, Trish, she should never have been allowed to run for the presidency based on what she did. <laughs> I say it's rigged because she but, should but, never, Trish, she should never have been allowed to run for the presidency based on what she did with emails and so many other but, things. But, sir, I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. Well, okay? Chris, let me respond to that because that's horrifying. You know, every time Donald thinks things are not going in his direction, he claims Whatever it is, is rigged against it. Uh, the FBI conducted a year-long investigation into my emails. They concluded there was no case. He said the FBI was rigged. He lost the Iowa caucus. He lost the Wisconsin primary. He said the Republican primary was rigged against him. Then Trump University gets sued for fraud and racketeering. He claims the court system and the federal judge is rigged against him. There was even a time when he didn't get an Emmy for his TV program three years in a row, and he started tweeting that the Emmys were rigged. Should have gotten it. This, this is a mindset. 
This is this is how Donald thinks. And it's funny, but it's also really troubling. Okay. No, that is not the way our democracy works. We've been around for 240 years. We've had free and fair elections. We've accepted the outcomes when we may not have liked them. And that is what must be expected of anyone standing on a debate stage during a general election. And, and I wanted to play that two minutes because this is, I think this is a mindset. And that goes back, to, you know, that was a 2016 election before it even happened. And, you know, regardless of where you stand or what party you support, as uh, candidate Clinton pointed out, that, you know, peaceful transfer of power, something that happened for 240 years is, is really a hallmark of democracy. And regardless of who you support, you know, going forward in future elections, um, you know, I think it's uh, something that's universal that you want the candidate who gets the most votes to win the election and um, to take office. So this should be a troubling trend regardless of where you stand politically. So, of course, that didn't end in 2016. I just wanted to select a couple more points in 2020, again, before the election actually happened, that the only way, Trump claims, the only way that this election could be taken away from us is if it's a rigged election. So you can either win the election or it's going to be rigged. Those were essentially the two options with the 2020 election. And then after, after the election, this was um, uh, nearly a year after, uh, Trump had this statement that the real insurrection happened on November 3rd, the presidential election, not January 6th, which was a day of protesting. So, you know, I could provide many other examples, but I think the case is made that uh, clearly it started from elites. Now, in terms of media, um, I think my colleagues, um, Professor of Communications um, and Journalism, Lisa Couch, and Information Literacy Librarian, Tish Hayes, they did an excellent uh, two-part series on the role of, of media. And uh, again, that's available on the Moraine Valley YouTube channel. I, I urge you to check that out. I think they make a really compelling case of how there's declining truth and trust in media. But just looking at social media, in the first week after the election, um, you know, 16 of the top 20 most popular Facebook posts were um, that featured election were false or misleading. Um, there's other examples of how Twitter, this is an MIT study from 2018, that fake news travels 70% faster on Twitter than real news. And um, so, you know, we could, and, and I could look at podcasts. There's um, another study um, on podcasts that I could be happy to talk more about that 25% of all the podcasts from the time period when Biden accepted the Democratic nomination until January 6th, 25% of those had um, endorsed misleading electoral narratives. So there's certainly a lot of examples of how this percolated through the media. And I also wanted to point out another visual that I think is helpful. This is coming from computer scientist Kate Starbird. She's at the University of Washington. And she actually uh, did a, a an excellent presentation you can watch on YouTube on the role of participants participatory disinformation. And I wanted to show this because I think it's another good visual uh, representation of how this essentially starts at the top with political elites and how it percolates down through the um, media ecosystem, how activists might reach retweet or share uh, misleading information online, and then just how this um, really gets 
pervasively into the audience's mind and then how the audience now she makes a case on how um, participatory disinformation impacted the 2000 and uh, the January 6 uh, capital insurrection and so she's kind of looking at this a little bit differently than I am but it's the same kind of mindset as far as the way it starts at the top and the impact that it has all the way down for citizens mindsets so of course, there's a lot of different examples one could cite, but just looking at the role of or looking at the changes, uh, particularly amongst Republicans, in the percentage of people who were confident that their vote was counted accurately, this is from Pew Research, uh, November 2020. And as you can see, there's just a stark decline from 2016 to 2020 of Republicans who feel that their vote was accurately counted. Um, a 40% decline. And there's also a lot of examples that I could cite um, to show that um, two thirds or more of Republicans um, don't believe that Biden is the legitimate president. So this one is from AP and ORC, where 65% of Republicans, but I'll show another one later on where it's as high as 78% of Republicans who don't think that Biden was legitimately elected. So I wanted to finally get to um, examples of how this model works in practice of misperceptions being cited as evidence and justification for new restrictive voting laws. So the segment that I'm about to read to you is from this article, and this was really the um, motivator for me to get into this project in particular, a perpetual motion machine, how disinformation drives voting laws. And this is from Maggie Astor of the New York Times from this last May. So this is a segment from that article. When state representative Bobby Kaufman of Iowa spoke in February in support of restrictive voting bill he was sponsoring, he could not point to any problems with the November election that demonstrated a need for new rules. But many Iowans believed there were, there had been problems, he said. And that was a reason enough to allow less early voting, shorten election day polling hours, put new limits on absentee balloting, and forbid counties to have more than one drop um, box. And so, um, you know, I'd be happy to show some of these states and the laws that they've um, the, the, that they've passed. But again, it's just based on the the misperceptions that citizens have that was originally fabricated from elites as the justification for these new restrictive voting laws. So, the final segment of my talk, I just want to talk a little bit about how this matters, and I could spend a lot more time on this than I will, but um, I wanna make about seven to eight points of why this matters. So as I've mentioned, just having trust in the outcome of elections is a hallmark of any democracy. And as I've previously pointed out, you know, a significant number, um, a strong majority of Republicans don't believe that Biden won the 2020 election. And as I claimed earlier, this should matter regardless of which uh, candidate or party you, you support. And of course, now we have many states that have passed really restrictive laws that could really hamper voter turnout. Um, there's been states like Iowa that, uh, or I'm sorry, Georgia, that makes it a, a crime to pass out food or water to those who are standing in long lines. And of course, some voting precincts have lines that can be hours long. 
Um, so there's a lot of examples I could point to for those who are interested, just uh, ask about it. And another significant trend that we've uh, seen is that Donald Trump is playing this role of kind of kingmaker where he decides to endorse candidates. And what's been clear is he is endorsing candidates who support the big lie. Um, and kind of filtering out, winnowing out, if you will, candidates that don't support the big lie, that believe that you know Biden legitimately won the 2020 election. And this is coming directly from his, his uh, spokesperson, that of course they're going to notice when there's people fighting for the truth about the November election results. And I'm listing this as a separate uh, factor, but it's very much related to the previous one. I just wanted to focus on Secretary of State races in several of the key swing states, the, swing, the states that are really going to decide the 2024 presidential election, the Secretary of State candidates, 10 of the 15 Republican Secretary of State candidates have essentially endorsed the big lie. So these are states like Arizona, Georgia, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Nevada. And now these are public officials who are gonna have, um, you know, a lot of power in making key decisions about the election process. So, you know, potentially having um, key people in these positions who um, you know, ha support the big lie is a troubling um, trend and, and concern that we should have going forward. Um, another one that I could spend a lot of time on, there has just been a huge exodus of people leaving, you know, professional, experienced, um, election judges and election staff who have been working for, for years, decades or longer, um, who have received death threats um, because of, um, you know, all of these misperceptions about widespread election fraud and the big lie. And so there's real concern. Um, one survey from Reed College, uh, the Democracy Fund, found that about a sixth of all election officials that they survey plan to retire before the 2024 election. And again, there's this real concern that they are going to be replaced by more partisan um, individuals, per perhaps individuals who um, are supporting of that big lie and kind of might put their thumb on the scale in future elections. And then um, this is another really troubling trend. Uh, this has happened in Arizona. Um, there's still ongoing efforts uh, for, this, for, uh, for this happening at the state level, but legislation that's essentially taking the power away from uh, elected officials, such as county clerks, secretary of state, and granting it to more partisan bodies to make decisions, um, in, in large part because so many um, Republicans were upset about the way that the Secretary of State in Georgia um, and other states handled the 2020 election. And related to that, and this has been recently described as kind of the nuclear or having a, a nuclear bomb type uh, implications on our political system, this idea that um, independent state legislature doctrine, which holds that um, state legislatures, as granted by the U.S. Constitution, should really have exclusive control over the rules of uh, choosing um, presidential candidates or presidential electors. So just the, the idea here is that, for, for example, in 2024, imagine a close battleground state like Georgia that was in 2020 decided by around 10 or 11,000 votes. Um, the idea here being that the state legislature of 
um, Georgia could decide how to award their electoral votes instead of how the citizens actually voted in the state of Georgia. Um, that's something that is uh, to keep your eye on. That's a, a trend that we could see. Um, there's, there's likely going to be a Supreme Court case, and we know that um, four of the members of the Supreme Court have already endorsed this theory. Um, and then last two, um, there just trends to turn overturn election results. Now, despite it being you know nearly two years since the 2020 election, there's like literally this is a March 1st uh, article where Republicans in, in uh, Wisconsin are still trying to decertify the election result. This idea of decertifying election results is not without precedent. Uh, as you may remember, after the 2020 election, nearly 150 Republican uh, members of House and Senate voted to decertify the 2020 election. And then lastly, one of our key tools to fight election fraud is known as an electronic system called the Electronic Registration and Information Center. It's a tool that's designed to fight voter fraud by sharing information between states when individuals pass away or when they might move. And we've already seen examples in states like Louisiana where um, based on these kind of the misinformation and misperceptions that states are trying to leave this interstate consortium to try to um, limit voter fraud. So the potential consequence is you have more voter fraud, which then might, um, of course, percolate back through the system and, and, and result in more um, restrictive voting laws in the future. So I think I've reached my um, halfway point. So I'm going to stop there with my presentation and stop sharing my uh, video and see if there's any questions and comments um, that I could get to. One of the questions coming up um, about the status of local conversations in Illinois related to voting laws. I do know that there's been proposals. Um, let's see if I can pull this up. Um, there's been proposals in Illinois um, amongst Republicans, but, um, and I, I do think that this is an important distinction to make, there's hundreds of proposals around the United States. I wanted to focus just on the actual bills that became a law. So in Illinois, there, are, there have been some um, discussions amongst Republicans to, to pass, uh, to propose some of these restrictive voting laws but I see very little chance. In fact, um, some states like Illinois have gone the other way and actually made um, passed legislation to make voting easier. Uh, now these are trends that I, I can't speak to in the last year, but have been ongoing where like same day voter registration. So Illinois happens to be one of the states that's actually making it easier to vote. trying to get the full question here. Do I think that mistrust will get worse in the future? I really do. Um, you know, I, I focused on this topic uh, for a reason because I think it has a way of influencing a lot of other topics. Um, I think that it's been a long-standing trend for, I think, the party out of power to believe in more 
conspiracy theories or misperceptions about the current administration. And uh, we've seen that with Democrats when there's a Republican in power. And so I do think that this is this, you know, I was trying to make that claim earlier. Um, there's a scholar who looked at the um, Chicago Tribune and New York Times for over 100 years to, to look at letters to the editor and um, found that there is a really consistent pattern of of conspiracy belief in conspiracy theories for the past 100 years or more. So there's there's kind of this idea that it's it's fairly consistent where, that there's going to be mistrust. Um, but what we've seen, I think, in the last five, 10 years in particular, is that the percentage of Americans who have trust in major institutions, um, it, trust in government, trust in the election system, trust in the media, has declined significantly. And that's a real troubling, um, that's a real troubling trend and one that it's hard for me off the top of my head to think of ways that we are going to kind of stop that, that trend and begin to kind of gain back trust. So I do think it's something that's going to get worse in the future. I think there's, I think there's, I have real concerns about future elections in particular, 2022, but in, um, in 2024, um, especially. There just seems to be too many scenarios where, you know, I think one of the reasons I spent so much time going back through almost a 10 year history of Donald Trump questioning elections is that, um, it, it, it's going to result in that mindset that somehow if your if your candidate loses, and I could go back and you could even look at in some cases in previous election years that Democrats when they lost in 2004, um, that their trust in the uh, election outcome went down a little bit, nothing like we saw in the last uh, year with Republicans. But I think that that's a real troubling trend that you can think, well, if my candidate or party lost, it's just because of voter fraud. It's just because the election is rigged. Um, so, and I think there's real concerns when I brought up that independent judiciary or independent legislature theory. Imagine a scenario where a Democratic candidate in 2024 receives millions of more votes in the popular vote wins the electoral college on paper because they won the most votes in enough of the states for the electoral college to be rewarded to them to get to the 270 vote threshold but somehow the um, state legislatures of key battleground states where you know that are controlled by republicans end up awarding their electoral college votes for um, the the losing candidate if you will and so imagine how um, Democrats might view um, trust in the system if that scenario unfolded. So I do have real concerns about this getting worse in the future. But, um, you know, the encouraging signs, and, and as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, Tish Hayes and Lisa Couch had done an excellent job of, 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 you know, what we can do about it. And I think information literacy um, and, you know, following traditional media and, you know, checking our sources, um, and, and being more aware of what we share online. There's a lot of different activities that we can engage in. This isn't really my specialty, um, but um, you know, the previous events that I, I mentioned would be helpful in um, you know, improving the, the, our trust in our major institutions. Okay, final 
uh, give another minute if there's any other questions or comments.